China is the world's biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. China is the world's biggest manufacturer of solar panels. China has the world's biggest population of any country. The list goes on and on. Whatever China does affects the world. We won't solve the climate crisis without China. Hello, I'm Anthony Day, and this is the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 16th of July 2021. Welcome to all my listeners, and especially to all you loyal patrons. China is frequently in the news. Last month, the Chinese Communist Party celebrated its 100th anniversary with a defiant speech from President Xi Jinping. Beijing will never allow any foreign force to bully it and anyone attempting to do so will find themselves on a collision with a great wall of steel forged by over 1.4 billion people. China won't accept sanctimonious preaching from others. Whatever China does affects the world. So what's going on? This week I've been able to talk to China's specialist, Jason Sheftel. I started by asking how he became involved in China. Where, where does your interest in China um, stem from and, and, and how have you been involved? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the interest goes back basically since as far as I can remember when I was really young and probably around 9-11, probably the early wars in the, in the Middle East in the 2000s. I was thinking, wow, the United States and the United Kingdom are willing to go mess up whole regions of the world. They don't seem to know what's going on in these places. And I just remembered in the back of my mind, I was thinking like, wow, this giant country is sort of modernizing and entering the, the, the modern world. And I just became fascinated by it. So they, over 10 years ago, I got, I studied Chinese in college. I got a scholarship to study in Beijing at Peking University. So I was there and I, that was actually where I was doing, it was, was the early two, 2010. So sustainable development was very big in the universities. It was a big, it was a big topic after the financial crisis about sort of building back in a more resilient fashion. So I was very much influenced by that. And yeah, there I was studying Chinese transportation systems, agriculture systems, energy systems, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, and then I was in and out of China from 2010 to 2015. And then I've been actually involved in sort of global development um, around the world since then. <laughs> I was a development lawyer and I worked in sort of global administration stuff. And that's, that's, where, it took, that's where it took me. Great. That's fascinating. Thank you. Uh, well, I did send you a few questions or a few high, uh, headlines. Um, uh, and my angle, of course, is climate change. And with China being now the largest emitter of greenhouse gases, uh, chi what China does is going to determine whether we actually solve the climate crisis or not. On the other hand, you've written an essay which suggests that the Chinese economy is in trouble. And um, I don't know whether that's going to actually affect its plans. I don't know whether that's at the back of them aiming for 2060 rather than 2050 like the rest of the world. What's your take on that? Yeah, so the Chinese economy, one thing that's always important to keep in mind is that the world, the Western world offloaded a lot of its climate burden and environmental challenges to China during the 1990s and 2000s. So all the most polluting industries in the world sort of set up shop in China. And that's actually the original reason why things like rare earth metals and, and all that is done and processed in China. So China's challenge in trying to decarbonize and just transform its economy is very, very, very tough. It really is. And 
It's the sort of thing that would have been much easier, maybe in 2008, 2005, 2011 even, when there was a lot more capital, capital running, sloshing around the country. Now things are much tighter. So it is a, it's a real challenge, transforming the grid, transforming the automotive sector, cement, metals, everything. It's, it's huge. And that's something, so I live in California. I always think it's so amusing. People in California love to talk about our green bona fides, but a lot of the things that we did to improve the world, we just sent to China. We don't do recycling in California. We just sent it to China. We don't do a lot of cement. We don't do a lot of all this stuff. It just happens in China. So the rubber hits the road there, right? You have to actually get rid of it and improve it and transform the processes. And will China do it? It's kind of a challenge because they have these industries due to cost. So the cost of these industries, the cheap, the ability to produce all these goods and services just very cheaply is what got them their position. And so if they want to transform everything, do all this research and development, it's going to, it's going to raise the cost. And that's something they're very, they're looking at very, very heavily. Okay. Well, if it's going to raise the costs, but if they've actually cornered the market by taking things away from the US and other industrialized nations, are they still going to be able to control the market and therefore pass those costs on? Yeah, that's a real challenge. The There looks to be a lot of suggestion in the West that that's probably not going to happen. And China seems to be realizing that. So the solar panel industry is just a great example, right? So I think 80%, 80% of the panels installed in the US are from China. 66%, I think, of all panels manufactured are in China. And the, the green energy supply chain in China is one of those places where a lot of our values sort of intersect and conflict, right? Humanitarian values, mm-hmm. forced labor, because everything built in Xinjiang is sort of infected with forced labor. Um, it's a very unsavory sort of thing, but it, it's it's known and it's, it's, it's definitely true. So do we expand panel production at the expense of all the people in China, in Western China? And these, these values are really conflicting at a time when economic nationalism is really on the rise all around the world. So will we expand panel production, turbine production, but give all of that to China during the process, it doesn't seem likely. It seems like there'll be a a push to have a lot of the industries more nationalized, more regionalized, especially when most green jobs, quote unquote, green jobs in the US, for example, are really construction installation jobs that aren't deep long-term sort of things. It sort of, it helps you with the build out, but then there's no continuous sort of industry behind it if you don't have the entire supply chain or more of some part of the supply chain at least in your country. So do you therefore think that the US will attempt to pull back some of the basic manufacture? Um, are there signs that, that, that Biden has got that in view at all? Yes, I think that's definitely the case. I think that both Trump and Biden are far more economic, economically nationalist than any president we've seen this millennium. And Biden is actually even more of an economic nationalist than Trump. We don't we don't hear it about it as much because it doesn't quite fit the narrative of these transformed policies, but things are really heating up on that front. There's so many Chinese companies and so many industries that are being targeted. And you could sort of target Chinese industries for any reason at this point. And it is cover to both bring manufacturing back to the United States and to sort of target various parts of the Chinese economy and their technology base. So they're using it. They're definitely using it. Yeah, okay. Now, one of the things that I've read about uh, rare earth metals is that the major supply, I mean, there's a lot in Africa, but there's a major proportion of the supply in China. And one of the reasons why it's in China and that the the mines in the United States have been closed down 
is that the production of these minerals is an incredibly polluting process. And nobody in the United States wants to take the liabilities for the, the pollutions involved. The Chinese have a different attitude, I believe, and uh, they will tolerate uh, a, a certain amount of pollution. Do you, do you, is that your reading of things? Yeah, that's true. The rare earth industry is one of those industries that is particularly the processing of rare earth metals is very, very environmentally destructive, damaging. And that was, well, to China, especially in the 90s and 2000s, it was willing to take that industry, it didn't really care about what happened to the environment, and it really cornered the market. And the U.S. was willing to offload it for a cheaper cost product and without any of the environmental damage. It's sort of like what we were talking about earlier, where a lot of the ways we improve the environment was just by sending the problems elsewhere. And that, yeah, and that's, that's kind of how it got to China right now. And then China in the last 10 years has really used rare earths as a strategic sort of tool. Once it realized it had this market, realized how important it was for U.S. military systems, electronic systems, for Japan, Japanese systems, it started to use it. And the truth is, I, I think the rare earth thing is kind of overblown at this point. The, the real thing is they're not actually rare. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. They're all over the United States, they're all over the, the, the Western Europe. The issue is just this processing issue. It's just the, the damage and the cost of doing it. And the US Defense Department is now pretty heavily invested in trying to re, reshore, onshore these sorts of this industry. And so I think in the next five years, it probably will be there'll be a much more diverse su supply of these metals. Cause again, they're, they're not hard to find or to mine. It's just, nobody wants to do, do the dirty and actually process them. So there's, I think two major mining operations that are kind of coming online in the U S maybe the next two, three years, one in California, one in Texas, and they're still sending the future sort of the different metals to China for processing, but we'll see, you'd probably need some improvements in the technology, the actual processing technologies, or you'd need some sort of leeway from the, the EPA or something. Most likely you'll see a defense department sponsored like, hey, we need these, it's a little bit more polluting, but the, the strategic value is just too great at this point. Okay. Well, of course, this reshoring of uh, rare metals and uh, other manufacturing processes is going to affect the economy in China. And how do you think China will react to that? China's got a lot of challenges with, with this sort of issue of just industries that it's really dependent on for its employment, for advancing up the value chain, the global value chain in all sorts of industries. It's very dangerous if all of these industries start to move away from China. And there are a couple of things pushing in that direction, even before COVID and even before all the nationalism, there are higher input costs. There were, so there was higher wages. Uh, even higher energy prices in China, all of that was pushing some production, mo mostly towards Southeast Asia, towards Vietnam, stuff like that. But the pressures now, the sort of strategic pressures, competitive pressures, the animus against China, all of this is moving things much quicker than they would have. And also, obviously, the COVID fears about production, localized production, and having to get masks from China and all of that. So China's very worried about this. The, the challenge for China is that it both needs all the industries it has and it needs the industries of the future, right? Because there's 1.4 billion people. You can't automate everything because what on earth are these people going to do? Uh, well, maybe they're going to start, you know, going on long walks together, you know, <laughs> millions of people throughout through the countryside, right? I mean, this is not, this is a nightmare situation for the Communist Party. So it really wants all the old industries and the new ones. And that's 
that's tough. That's a tough sell for the rest of the world. Well, what are we all supposed to do? And it's, you know, it's lost. China's lost a lot of its sort of ability to slink in the shadows, sort of like in the 2000s and mid 2010s, it was still able to sort of do its thing. Now there's so much focus on it that it's, it's really struggling to find out what to do. One of the criticisms that came out at the time when COVID started and the, and the outbreak was identified in Wuhan was that China buries bad news. China has an obsession with secrecy. Um, now, of course, you're aware that there's been a problem with a nuclear plant in Taishan, which is very significant because for Europe anyway, because we are building three plants to that design they're not completed yet. But if the Taishan plant is defective, then there are going to be an awful lot of questions asked over some very big and expensive projects. Now, the engineering company, the European engineering company, which is involved in it, has gone through in some detail and said this is a routine operation and there's nothing to worry about. But the trouble with China and its attitude to secrecy means people are not going to believe that, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I think you're right. The The problem in Taishan was very uncomfortable for a lot of people and definitely for the joint venture partner, I think the French energy company, when you're dealing with some of these secretive Chinese state companies and you have deals with them, it is very difficult to sort of coordinate messaging to get everyone to on the same page because often the Chinese are focused on their domestic market. They're focused, and by that I mean, they're focused on convincing the Chinese people that everything is good, that things are getting better and that this sort of you know political scientists like to call it performance legitimacy. So China doesn't have electoral processes, doesn't have democracy but it can say, hey, we're bringing the goods. And anytime things mess up, whether it's COVID, with a, you know, whether it's the Wuhan lab or whether it's a wet market or whatever, but anytime something goes wrong, the, the Chinese the Communist Party looks incompetent, it looks weak, it looks buffoonish, or, or even the stock market problems in 2015 in Shanghai. All of this is very dangerous for a party that relies on this perception of its extreme competence. It's, you know, it's the, the legacy state of like a 5,000 year, um, people, right? Civilization has the wise forethought of, you know, generations behind it, right? You can't, there's a whole narrative and there's a whole very important image that you don't want to break. And it is a real challenge when, like you said, these technologies, I think it's a Franco-German technology at the heart of the, the new, it's a real challenge. And the nuclear industry doesn't have economies of scale. Every single project is a massive capital project. It's just, you really don't want this in that industry, right? Of, of all industries, you don't want it. It has so many problems. So, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. We'll, we'll see what they do with the disclosures and, and that, but it looks like the, the problem wasn't terrible. So that's good, but mm -hmm. um, it actually doesn't seem like it was that big a problem, but I, I think you're really right that it's after Fukushima, after all these things, and then after Wuhan with this, this sense of secrecy, this opacity, it's, it's very discomfortable, uncomfortable for many people and discomforting. And I think it's just going to get worse. I think that a lot of the, the joint, there's a lot of joint companies in China. They sort of, for a long time, they were forcing companies to work with a, a national partner. So China would get the technology, would get the experience, they'd be able to move up the value chain. And that already was having problems. But if you already have this, if you have this greater opacity and you have more intrusions of the actual communist party in these companies. So for a long time, the party itself was sort of behind the scenes. Now it's really coming to the fore in a lot of companies. There, there are party cells, party groups, party meetings, party committees, and it's, 
it's a very different world in a lot of ways. So I think a lot of companies are, aren't quite sure what they're dealing with even. Right, right. You say the government um, suffers loss of face if we have things like the Wuhan problem and, and other things like that. But is there any sort of credible opposition to China? We see it as a one-party state. I think it is, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's the government, oh, yeah. nobody's going to overthrow the government, are they? The, the opposition to the, there, you're, you're 100% correct. There is no opposition, functional opposition to the Communist Party. But what they fear isn't another party. What they feel is mass chaos, like like the sort of stuff you 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 need um, apocalyptic Hollywood movies to to envision. That's what they're really fearful of, and that's what the Chinese, all Chinese states, imperial or otherwise, have always feared. And yeah, so that's why they actually spend more on internal security than they do on external defense on their military. They're spending more trying to make sure no Chinese people rebel or people in Xinjiang or Tibet or wherever than they are preparing to fight the US military. Right, that, that, that's incredible, really is, isn't it? Yes, I've heard they've got cameras, they've got nearly as many cameras as we've got in the UK. Um, and uh, people have got identity cards, of, of course, and uh, yeah, well, the deal is they get a good standard of life if the government do um, what it likes. Uh, that's for everybody except the minorities, I believe. Yeah, there's a whole since the Qing Dynasty, the Chinese government has been an has been more or less a, a multi-ethnic sort of empire under various mm -hmm. things. That was sort of the official ideology, and the minorities they've tried to bring into the fold. But minority peoples in China are basically poorly assimilated, conquered peoples. That is the more true way to look at it. The minority rhetoric is stuff that's from old 20th century socialism, communism, and, and sort of those battles. But yeah, in general, the Chinese people, and really a lot of minorities as well, they are supportive of the Communist Party. This is something that we, it's very hard for us with our Western liberal individualist values to really absorb. But if you took a poll, which you can't obviously take a poll in China, they won't allow this because they wouldn't want to see what would happen. But I'm, I'm pretty confident that a healthy majority of the country would approve of the, of the party. They would, they would approve of it. And the party is like, it has a lot of very competent people. I, I don't want to, I don't want to sound here like I'm supporting them or complimenting them. But for example, there's so many more technically people with technical degrees in the communist party than there are in Western governments. The US and the UK are great examples. It's all lawyers, it's all politicians. There's no actual technical degrees. In China, it's very different. They've worked very hard to try and make a technical, technocratic elite, right? It's an old ideal there. The, the, so there is competence there, but there's just challenges that are so much bigger than a lot of places on earth. And personally, I believe it's much bigger than 95 million uh, bureaucrats are going to be able to handle. But the people know that, the, like I was saying earlier, that the chaos, this, the fear of chaos, the, the worry of what could happen is so much worse um, in, their, in their view. Um, I think it's tend to get worse sort of as Chinese regimes, as things get more difficult, they start to get more rigid, more defensive, more intolerant, more nervous. And so you get more social controls, more surveillance, all of that. So towards the end, it's a bit of a tension, right? People start to more and more feel like, oh, this is getting tyrannical, more and more tyrannical, what do we do? But the fear of chaos is always kind of in the background. So they choose, but it's tough. It's so tough for people in the West. It's one of the things I'm talking about so much is just this, the sense that there actually is support for them is, is very hard for us to, to comprehend, but they are able to do, you know, sort of very big projects that people 
wish we could do. I think a lot of people in the sort of environmental sustainable development world wish the US could, or the UK or Europe could engage in these massive projects to sort of change the environment, to support climate change, the, improve the prospects for climate change. And so that's sort of one of the tensions too. Right. Meanwhile, despite all the challenges that may be within the country, they are expanding with the Belt and Road Initiative, with investments in Africa. I heard the other day that quite apart from the fact that they, the Chinese have an investment in the nuclear power station we mentioned in the UK, they're also now buying up schools in the UK. There's been a lot of controversy both in the US and uh, the UK about Huawei and uh, telephone, telecommunications infrastructure. So they're certainly spreading their influence outside their borders. And um, is that going to continue? Yeah, the heyday for the Chinese spreading their influence around the world was probably 2012 to 15. That was really when all the companies in China were saying, all right, let's go. Let's go big. We're going global. We're the national champions are going to become the global champions. But things um, started to cut back when in 2015, 2016, they started to have massive capital flight out of China, started to have real economic issues when they were opened up too much, when these companies started to, well, buy trophy trophy properties in New York and London and all this, and the party decided to clamp down and keep the, the capital in China. But what we see a lot of now is just what you mentioned. There's the Belt and Road Initiative, which a lot of it is really to keep overproducing in all these industries to sustain their their production. So China's built more deep water ports than anyone ever. So maybe they don't, what do they do with the deep water port industry when they've built every nook and cranny of Chinese coast? And you, you build them all over the rest of the world. You build them in Africa, you build them in Sri Lanka, you build them anywhere. So A, it's a port. Maybe in the future, we'll have it as a giant military base or something. But right now, it also keeps people employed. It, it prevents these industries from collapsing. And so you see a lot of that. There's you know, in Karachi, where there's nuclear nuclear plants, power plants all over the world. A lot of this is to just keep keep everything humming, right? Like we were saying, I, I think I don't know where, where you mentioned what I'd read, but what I'd written, but there is problems in the Chinese economy and keeping everything humming as much as possible. Like we were saying, you have you want they want all the present industries and all the future industries to keep going, but that's a challenge. So you see that you see this overproduction and trying to scale it across the world with the Belt and Road Initiative, and then you just see straight up neo-colonial sort of resource grabs. That's what a lot of what you see in Africa. It's just like they'll build a port with a single road, a single trunk line to a single spot where there's a, one resource or good or metal or copper or whatever, and, and they'll just ship it right back out. I mean, that's like the that's like the definition of, of a neo-colonial sort of process. And it's I saw a map actually recently of just all of their projects, infrastructure projects in Africa are exactly that. It's pretty crazy. So that's those are the two things managing the overproduction so sending it around the world that was kind of what they did in a sense with the, in the 2000s just all the products that we bought they couldn't they couldn't sell as many i mean everything <laughs> mattresses electronics whatever just in china they need to send it all around the world and it's still the same thing china's hoping for a consumer economy to support everything but its industry is so big now like we were saying all these industries it, it outcompeted or flooded the market outcompeted everybody with with subsidies, taxes, whatever it was. And now they have to keep it all afloat. It's 30% of global manufacturing is, is done in China at this point. And it's, it sounds impressive. It sounds very amazing. But keeping that system humming, it's just very difficult. Jason, that's fascinating. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. Sure. What will China look like in five years time? 
Well, if it's a steady state thing, no, no sort of real major problems, like crises occur, major crises. I think you'll just see more, more of an extension of what we see now. So there'll a lot, there'll be a lot more surveillance technologies. And you mentioned a couple. You mentioned the ID cards and stuff, but things are very, very intense in China now with surveillance. So they do gate analysis. They have biometric markers. They do. They're doing emotional analysis with AI in your face to see what your emotional state is when you walk around the city, when you walk around to buildings. They have just a complete comprehensive set of all sorts of pretty scary um, facts and features about people that can correlate. They can see who you are when you have a mask. They can see where you've been. They know everywhere, everyone you've ever contacted through social messaging, through media. They can delete or remove any of your you know, digital presences or communications whenever they please, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's very intense. And the best way to keep the Communist Party alive is to lower the cost of controlling its population. And AI and all the technologies we're seeing, all these surveillance technologies, they are the greatest thing that's ever happened to a state like China, where it can, it can, I know this sounds very callous, but it lowers the sort of per capita cost of social control and population control. And it, even better, it can, inter, it can help people internalize these controls. So something like a, a social credit score, I know it starts to sound very minority report, very big brother, and again, <sighs> horrifying to, all, to us. And I agree with that. It's just, uh, might as well prevent, present people with what's going on. It, you, basically, if you, if you behave well, you do everything right, you say the right things, you do the right things, you can get cheaper plane tickets. You can get you know, more, more swipes on your dating app. You, know, you can get all sorts of things. Um, versus if, you, if you're caught jaywalking on a camera, you know, your, your credit card scores go down, maybe you can't book a train to somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. There's gonna be all these micro incentives to control behavior. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a behaviorist, that old psychology school behaviorist look at what to do with people. And that's probably the key thing. I think there's some books that have come out about surveillance, a surveillance state and surveillance capitalism. It's really something people should keep their eye on because this is more present in the West also than we want to believe. It's not quite in the state's hands, but these technologies exist. And so they're being used behind the scenes. They're correlated in all sorts of ways, typically for profit. But we're going to see a lot of this um, just as China does it. Unfortunately, it's there doing these things. So it's the world we live in. Well, that's a really scary note to end on. Um, I never thought we'd come to that, to be perfectly cool. honest. But Jason, thank you very much for your time. That's been really interesting. I'm sure the listeners to the podcast will be delighted or interested. And uh, well, thank you again for uh, taking the time to come and talk to us about China. It's certainly going to make us think. It certainly is. Thanks, Anthony. It was a lot of fun. Jason Sheftel. After we finished, he said, but there's a lot more. Thanks, Jason. I hope to have you back on the Sustainable Futures Report later in the year. You can find Jason's articles, videos and his podcast on his website, which is at www.jasonsheftel.com. Now that's spelt J-A-S-O-N-S-Z-E-F-T-E-L.com. And of course, that's on my website. You can pick up that link there. And that's it for this week. Before I go, let me thank my patrons once again for their continuing support. 
The Sustainable Futures Report has no advertising, sponsorship or subsidies, so your monthly contributions help to cover the cost of hosting the podcast and of transcribing interviews like this one, so the full text can appear on the website. You'll usually get each episode a few days earlier than the general public if you're a patron, and I'm always open to your suggestions and ideas. You can sign up to be a patron at www.patreon.com slash sfr that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr I hope to see you there I'm Anthony Day that was the Sustainable Futures Report until next week (music)